Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have John Harris, who's president and CEO of Worldwide Partners, which is an interesting conglomeration of 72 agencies around the world. We're going to talk today about independent agencies, the independent agency mindset, the models and the practices that they have. We'll talk a little bit about how strategy fits in with that. And we're definitely going to talk about how this conglomerate of, uh, of agencies comes together because it's, it's quite different. First of all, I do want to start off with a question about president and CEO, John, because that title, those titles don't necessarily exist together in other parts of the world. And they confused me when I first moved to America. What's the difference between a president and a CEO? And uh, well, ha having both yeah, of those titles, it, what does that actually signify? It depends on who you ask. But I think in, in, in my world, um, you know, the presidency piece of it has me, um, you know, very involved in the the day-to-day -day operations uh, of the network, uh, which is, um, as you said, a global network of, of all independent agencies. And so I think there's a, a, there tends to be a more uh, operational component with the president's title. And then with the CEO title, um, you know, there is a, 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 a broader representation of the organization externally. Um, you know, many times there's a, there's a top to top piece of this that uh, in some countries and in some cultures um, is, uh, is, is, is pretty prevalent. And so there's a, a signal uh, that comes with that. To be honest with you, um, I do anything I can around here to make our agencies successful and better agencies. So the title is, is somewhat irrelevant, but I think mm -hmm. culturally they've been established to, to help you know, present who you are in a certain guise, if you will, in a positive way to uh, the people that you're working with. So, okay. um, you know. And help me understand when an agency makes a chief creative officer and an executive creative director a president, is that an operational? Are they taking up operational responsibilities there? What, what is that mode of president? Yeah, I think it, it varies by, um, by background. You know, um, I think that you know, one of the challenges that I've and the chief creative officers or, or ECDs that I've worked with who've, who've taken on either a president's role at, a, at an agency or they started their own agency is, is you know, they get further away from the work. Uh, and then now they're, they're not managing clients, but they're managing people and they're managing P&Ls. And um, I think where I've seen it successful is on two fronts. I think when uh, someone who has not necessarily had the, the operational background of, of running an agency where they have a, a strong um, chief operating officer or CFO who can help balance out um, that skill set, I think it, uh, it works very well. Uh, but you have a number of chief creative officers who've spent time in and uh, large holding company environments who've ventured off onto their own and they've done it because they're entrepreneurs. And so they, they learn the business and, um, and they find a way of finding a, a good balance between staying close to the work and close to the clients, but also um, you know, following their entrepreneurial dream of, of running a, a profitable and growing business. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's talk worldwide partners, 72 agencies, 40 countries. You describe it as a network. How does it work and how is it different to other quote unquote networks? Believe it or not, the network was founded 80 years ago, in 1938, so 81 years ago now. And it was founded by a group of, of five U.S. agencies who were in the southwest region uh, of the United States. And the, the goal, quite honestly, was to position themselves larger as a group than as an individual agency, because at the time, someone might argue this now, and someone in London might argue against this. But, you know, New York was was seen as the center of, of advertising excellence. And so uh, they came together to represent themselves as larger uh, as a group. Uh, and they also came together to share best practices and, and learnings because running an agency is a, can be a lonely business. And so having access to people who've gone through some of the same things that you've gone through is a, 
agency leader was was in, it was invaluable. If we fast forward uh, 80 years, now we are you know 72 agencies in, in in 40 countries, and all the agencies maintain their independence. It's a, a bit of a reverse holding company model, uh, in that rather than us own the agencies. Uh, the agencies own the network and they buy shares in the network and 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 um, uh, and it changes the conversation when they're talking to clients that you know this isn't a a loose federation of of, of pins on a map rather a, a committed group uh, committed to collaboration and, and and serving each other you know i think what's what's made it different i think first and foremost is you know it's the independent spirit you know these are entrepreneurs who started agencies who um, who think business first and when they're talking to clients about business growth they understand it because they're running their own respective businesses. Um, you know, they're, they're much more agile. And I know that's an overword, overused word, and it means different things to different people. But I think I would narrow it down to flexible uh, and, and more customizable than perhaps a holding company model um, because they're not, um, they're not you know, required headcount models that they have to uh, abide to. They can, they can create their own uh, customized solution for clients. And mm. I think what probably makes the group most unique and I spent time uh, in the Omnicom system uh, within TBWA and within Integer and with no disrespect to those respective organizations because I had a great, great career and, and uh, there and, and, and feel very proud of the work that was done. But when it came down to collaborating uh, on a multinational level, on a global level, um, you know, we had a, a, a common process and disruption, a global leadership team, a consolidated P&L, all the agency offices across the world were branded the same. But we struggled to collaborate effectively because we were all fighting for money and control. Um, you know, the MD and uh, had you know um, uh, revenue goals in, in the U.S. that that he or she needed to hit, and um, the MD in the U.K. did the same. And um, so you know, it was a money grab. And you know, an ECD in Spain was not going to take direction from an ECD in China. It was, uh, I think, admirable in spirit, but but flawed in execution. And what I've seen with the independent agencies is. Uh, this level of, of accountability and reciprocity to each other to just win, to just get it done and do the right thing for each other and the right thing for the clients. And I think the fact that they have the freedom as independent agencies to, to do whatever it takes uh, makes the model very, very unique. So I know you've touched on some of these points, but just I'd love to s summarize them and see what you would add to it. What are the main benefits that independent agency owners get from joining worldwide partners? Sure. I, I think the first, maybe most obvious, I mean, it's, it's in the name, right? Um, you know, one, it's the ability to scale their service offering to support clients that may require multinational support without the time and expense of opening up offices all over the world and, and being able to count on the partners in the other offices to deliver the same quality of work and quality of service uh, for your client as, as you would deliver. And I think the second piece, as I mentioned, is, is, is you know, running an agency is a lonely business and the ability to you know, across 40 different countries, all of the challenges, um, despite being different currencies and different cultures and different languages, all the challenges and all the opportunities are very, very similar. You know, it's about finding and retaining great talent. It's around dealing with margin erosion. It's about expanding service offerings and the ability to pick up the phone and, and as well as meetings that we, we conduct and talk to anybody all over the world and say, how, do, how are you dealing with this problem? is is an inval invaluable component of the value proposition for agencies and i think you know there our call our phone rings when a when an agency needs to scale for multinational business but there are these benchmarks for agencies when they're growing you know when you hit 50 people now you have to ask the question do i need a head of hr 
Um, do I need a full-time IT person? Uh, do I need to move from a controller to a CFO? And being able to tap into other agency leaders who have asked themselves those same questions for guidance is, again, an, an invaluable piece of the value proposition. Right. So there's a couple of things there. So the first one is scale. So being able to scale geographically and potentially by being able to also offer complementary services that perhaps one agency doesn't have or is new to. Mm -hmm. And then peers where part of that is about knowledge and wisdom and part of it's, you know, it's, it's lonely <laughs> running, running a business, right? So there's probably right. an emo emotional element to that. You mentioned quality control. Now, I think many networks would talk about integration and collaboration and start presentations with, you know, a hundred dots on the maps to show all the offices that we can, that, that we can get the thinking through. It's difficult to work with people that you sit near, let alone people who are in a different place, let alone people in a different company name. What are some of the challenges that happen when it comes to independent agencies working together with each other? And let's assume best intentions at all times, but what are some of the challenges that they face? Yeah, you know, I, I think that some of them are inherent in tax laws and in and, and billing and, and some challenges that may come. And, and you know, there's some areas in Asia where, where agencies are, are still getting 15% commission um, um, on a media buy, and it's covering all of the creative as well. Um, you're not getting 15% uh, in the U.S., right? So we, we have to look at, in some instances, different compensation models uh, in different countries. But for the most part, to my point earlier about agencies doing whatever it takes, it comes down to communication. And I think if everybody understands going in how we need to manage this client and, 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 and build a solution for the client, I find that the independent agencies are much more flexible in working with each other. So, but it is a dynamic that we, that we work through. I think at times, uh, obviously, language can be a barrier, but all the agencies who join our network or um, have a, a strong staff who who is, uh, is English speaking as the as somewhat of the universal language, uh, and then we work through it. And I think what's what's probably the, the biggest component of ensuring, you know, great quality work and strong collaboration is making sure that our agencies have time to actually meet with each other. You know, we have, you know, uh, multiple global summits uh, each year. We do topic-specific events. You know, we had our 10 CFOs from US, U.S. agencies all come together uh, in our HQ offices to talk about everything from building relationships with procurement to um, uh, dealing with um, freelance uh, economy. And so we, when you meet people firsthand, and sometimes it happens over Skype and sometimes as a person, uh, and you have a relationship and you know who you're talking to over the phone, it's, it's tough to scale, but when we're able to do it, uh, the magic is, is, is prevalent. Mm. Is there much friction in deciding who gets to go through the door first, who gets to lead the relationship? No, I think typically the majority of our, our, our collaborations come through um, a specific agency, right? So if you've got R&R partners in Las Vegas who does Vegas tourism, um, and that's their primary client, which they've had for probably three decades now, uh, and they need activation of Chinese tourists uh, to, to drive them to Las Vegas, uh, they'll work with our agencies in China, and those agencies realize that uh, R&R is the, you know, the lead agency, and, and they're there to support them. And, um, but it's never in this you know, subservient you know, role. Everybody understands that they wouldn't have had the opportunity if it wasn't for the lead agency, and, and they get on board, and, and then they support each other. When an opportunity comes into the network uh, from a respective client, you know, I can typically ask the client three questions. Uh, is there a market priority? Is there a, a category requirement, um, automotive, for example? Uh, and is there a specific capability you're looking for? And by the time I ask those three questions, it becomes very clear who should be the, the, the lead agency in, in, in that uh, scenario. It's surprisingly for 80 years has, uh, 
has uh, maybe surprisingly has worked very well. Right. So market category capability as how you can get business to where it needs to be led from. And with Worldwide Partners itself, does it act more like a membership organization people buy into and they get services or does the corporation pay money back to agencies based on the network's performance? I think the, 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 the business model is very association based, but I, I hate that term because it, it, it feels so static and uh, lacking in commercialization, right? So the roots are in an association kind of um, model. Uh, agencies pay an annual fee to be part of our, our network and it's, it's based on, um, on revenue. Uh, so very similar to a model like the four A's in the U.S. But the, the big emphasis that we've had is, uh, is yes, it is invaluable to be able to call on peers and, and get best practices. But at the end of the day, um, you know, this has to drive business. And so um, we've, we've, we've moved beyond the, the association operating model and really trying to commercialize the return for the agencies driving business, uh, whether it's organic growth or new business growth um, uh, with multinational clients. Hmm. And do you have a sense of what percentage of the entire network's business comes through the front door of worldwide partners as opposed to going into the discrete agencies? Yeah, I would say the majority of, of the business now is coming in, again, from a lead agency. Um, and I think as we get, begin to put more emphasis on this, we begin to more create more awareness uh, for the network. I mean, I'm still surprised. I was surprised. You know, when I joined the network three years ago, um, and I you know, spent 25 years in advertising at the time, had no idea that there were independent networks uh, as an alternative to the, the holding company model. And so there's still a great deal of, but growing, um, a lack of awareness of, of, of the independent network model. So mm. our position of strength right now is as the agencies promoting their, their capabilities that the network affords them. Um, but we have some initiatives um, uh, moving forward here and, and bringing um, the network visibility more forward because it, it's, you know, it's just like with a client. You know, if there's not a market leader and, and we talk to them about creating market presence and awareness, uh, the first that can get out there and, and take that ownership and leadership position is the one that uh, the clients are going to look to. So we yeah. are we're making some pretty concerted efforts to, to create a broader awareness on a global level uh, about the offering. Right. Yeah, look, I love finding out about how the the money to be crass, how the money flows through these kinds of models and any agency model, because when you're starting out in a career working in an agency, no one really tells you, you know, there's, there might be a global or a, a global CEO of a holding company who has financial reports and they present them to Wall Street, but they're often in language that doesn't always make sense to the people doing the work. And those things don't really, oh, I didn't find that they got circulated within the agencies. So there's this bizarre wall invisible wall between the people doing the work and any anyone else trying to help them understand the context of the company in which they're doing the work at the same time where when we know this is true and i'm not saying this in a dramatic way but we know there's resentment about some of the where the money's going how some agency networks most of the money is going towards administrative roles as opposed to the people doing the creative work or the strategic work or managing the clients. And at the same time, those people are being told that there are salary freezes and they're hearing about margin mm -hmm. squeezes at the same time that some of these big salaries are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm not making a comment on any of them. I'm just trying to lay it out. Sure. And simultaneously, there are yearnings within the world for more equitable, a more equitable relationship between what someone does for their career and day job and the structure of that agency and whether it's employee owned, et cetera. Like what, what are some of the new and interesting ideas out there about how agencies are structuring perhaps to recognize that 
maybe capitalism has gotten a little bit crazy and it could be a little <laughs> bit more empathetic. Are you seeing anything interesting out there? Well, yeah, and let me, let me just address one thing on the network um, uh, model. Yeah, I think what makes this group very unique, right, is, is I don't own this network. Uh, the agencies own the network. And, um, you know, we are, we are a C corporation in, uh, in the U.S., but we, we run in similar fashion to a nonprofit in that all the dollars that we, that we generate as a network, um, uh, we invest right back into the network to market the network and to, to produce events and to provide tools for our, um, uh, our agencies. You know, this isn't, you know, no one's sitting on my shoulder saying you have to drive 10% growth and 15% margin. Um, we invest everything right back into the network because the agencies own it. And my accountability, my bosses are as a board of directors of, of 10 agency leaders all over the globe. That's who I answer to. Uh, they approve the P&L and how we spend the dollars as a network. So it's a very, very different model than the, the top-down kind of holding company model. So I think it's, it's pretty unique because our, our purpose is very clear to, mm. to, to support our agencies, to make our agencies better agencies and, and help them grow, whatever that means to them. So it's, 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 it's pretty unique in that. Um, I think, you know, to your question, I mean, certainly there are um, um, uh, agencies that are looking at uh, employee stock uh, opportunities. And um, I think many of those are, are agencies who, you know, some of the leaders may be looking at succession planning and, and, and how do they turn this over to the agencies to give them some, um, some equity in the organization and not just at the, you know, the partner level. I'm starting to see that uh, happen uh, more consistently, but I, I don't know that there's anything I would point to that says we've 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 figured that out. I think mm. when I ran an agency, um, it was within TBWA. We had about 100 employees, and and we were you know owned by Omnicom at that point. But I found that we're really good at sharing good news as leaders, but we're really bad at sharing bad news. And you know this was a this was 2000. I was there 2006 to 2008. Okay, so we all remember 2009. <laughs> and um, I think that what employees appreciate, and we're sometimes so scared to share the bad news, is transparency to the extent that, that we can provide it, right? And, and sometimes in a publicly traded environment, you can't share everything. But I found more often than not, um, whether employees had a, a, a specific you know, equity in the, in the organization, if they understood what was going on and they had visibility to how the agency was performing, both good and bad, it gave them some ownership in the outcome. And uh, I think that that's not around a specific process or employee stock plan. It's about communication. And yeah. I think there's a higher degree of, of transparency and, and communication required of, of senior leaders these days than ever before. Right. What's the acronym for, is it ES, employee stock? ESOP. ESOP, that's right. ESOP, yeah. E-S-O-P? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of thinking. It's been around for a long time and there are a lot of companies thinking about this and pro probably in smaller markets and probably not in New York, but you've got B Corp, which is a relatively new idea and ESOP. Uh, I've heard of a few ESOP agencies in the Midwest. And so for people who are listening, if you're thinking about owning, creating, taking over an agency one day, check out these things. They have pros and cons like everything else intended good consequences and unintended not so good consequences. But I, I think that East, the idea of ESOP is, is very interesting as we head further into this century and whatever this century is going to throw at us. Um, okay, let's, let's talk psychology. Uh, but first of all, I okay. thank you for sharing stuff about structure. I think it's really important. And I really do hope that people who do creative work take more responsibility for understanding the structures within which they operate so that they aren't victims to those structures. I don't mean it in a 
crazy, hyperbolic, dramatic way. I know the word victim is exactly that. But uh, be aware of the environment within which you operate because you're, you're not a widget who goes to a factory every day and then you come home and that's that. You, you're, you're more than that and you're going to be able to affect more people if you acknowledge that earlier in your career or at some point in your career. John, teach me about people who own and run independent agencies. I want you to think about mm. them. I want, to, I want you to think about your last network meeting and the people there. Is there a way for you to break down the types of people that come to mind by their motivations and their goals? Perhaps the most obvious characteristic is uh, an entrepreneurial mindset. Okay, and, and, and whether they're uh, uh, someone who's come from a, a holding company environment who said, I, I want to do my own thing, or they've started their own agency. You know, we have a, an agency in Knoxville, Tennessee, the Tombers Group, that's now third generation ownership of, of and, 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 you know, leadership within the, in the group. And so, but the, one of the, the, the key common denominators is, is around being an entrepreneur uh, and, and wanting to control your destiny, thriving on, on, on you know, taking calculated risks and, and, and embracing, embracing change. Um, I think that's probably the most consistent characteristic I, 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 I would see. I think that, you know, we're seeing several new agencies uh, who have been started by creative directors. Um, you know, I, I'm in Denver. Uh, obviously, Crispin Porter uh, is down the street in, in, in Boulder. And uh, there have to be at least 10 or 15 spinoffs um, of ex-Crispin folks who have gone off, not, not necessarily as a, I'm, I'm done with Crispin, I don't mean it in that way, but have, have built great careers and great portfolios and great relationships with clients that said, I want to start my own thing. And their passion is around doing great, great work um, and, and, and having very, very strong client relationships. I think, you know, many times when you look in the, in the agency industry, you, in the past, and, and we can go down this path at some point about the role of account service these days, but when you talked about the client relationship, it was always, you know, the account person and the, and the client and, and managing that relationship. But I think the most magical relationships I've ever seen is when uh, the creatives and the clients are in simpatico. Right. I mean, it is, um, you know, you can look at, um, you know, Fernando Mercado uh, at Burger King, who you had uh, on one of your podcasts and his relationship with Anselmo Ramos when Anselmo was at David and, and he's now started his own independent agency. I mean, the work they were able to do was, was powerful. And so I think that's a driver uh, for those on the, on the creative side. And I think if you, you know, if you look within the, 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 I don't want to say the younger generation because I'm not that old and I'm not going down that, you know, millennial path. But if you look within many of the digital agency startups, um, you know, there, there's a mindset of these guys really believe and want to change the world. You know, they are passionate about, about data. They're passionate about the promise of AI and they want to create and build something. And so I think those are, you know, kind of three buckets I, I, I put our agency uh, leaders in. And I think that there is universally across all of them, this desire to learn. I mean, you know, when we get together in meetings, you know, we have outside speakers that come in and because we want to provide some inspiration. But candidly, if the agency's owners could sit in a room for three days and just talk one-on-one, -on -one, that's all they want to do because mm. they learn so much from each other. And I think, you know, it's part of why you do what you do here at this podcast and, and people listen is because there's passion for, for learning. So that's how I can you know, characterize the, the leadership within our, our agencies. Okay. And when you use the word entrepreneurial or entrepreneur, what does that mean to you? 
you know, as I said, I think it's one, it's, it's a business first mentality. You know, I mean, listen, they want to make money. We're not, you know, we're not all in this for, you know, none of us are in this really for, for the charity side of it. So there's a, there's a capitalism, there's a business component, there's a desire to, to, to control their, their, their destiny. They are idea people who, who aren't afraid to, to, you know, to use a very U.S. centric term to swing for the fences and, and hit home runs. And they, they tend to have had success in their past. Um, throughout their life, and um, and so it's 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 commitment. They're putting their name and you know many times their their families, their mortgages, everything on the line uh, for the sake of building something special. And um, that's how I'd uh, you know describe a, an entrepreneur. Hmm. I think it's always really important to define that word because it's used so easily these days because yeah, there is such a kind of media fetish especially for the young entrepreneur uh even though the average age of successful depending on how you define that but i think the average age of successful entrepreneurs who start businesses is actually late 30s so I, th I think it's 37 or something uh but the media loves to pick up the story of the 15 year old or the 22 year old or the 25 year old uh, and then often we work in agencies and we're like i'm so entrepreneurial but what do we actually mean by that? That you take risks that, or is it about making money? Is it, what, what is it? And I just think, I think it's useful because there are, there are people who be listening to this who are wondering whether they want to set up their own agency at some point. Uh, and when I talk to people who are thinking through those things, I, I ask them whether they identify more and you're allowed to do whatever you want, but whether you identify more as an artist, an entrepreneur or an employee where to me, an entrepreneur is someone who is a little bit different for the work we do. But in general, I see an entrepreneur as someone who's trying to create a business that can scale often, but usually by using, by creating repeatable processes, right? Which is different to a small business person who's entrepreneurial, but who's really running a small business to give themselves a job. That's more of an employee mindset. How do you feel about those kinds of definitions? No, I, 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 I think they're, they're spot on. And, and I think that the, you know, again, one of the common themes is there, there is risk, right? There is, there is, there is risk with this. And when you're going out on your own and, you know, certainly if you've got some, some capital investment behind you, you'd be, you know, that mitigates some of it, but then, you know, you've, you've got someone else to answer to. I think I'll give you a new term. It's an intrapreneur. Mm -hmm. Right, which is you know what we would what we would many times categorize you know the the person who was kind of the catalyst within the agency who you know was able to go and push and be innovative, but he was able to do it in the safety of a, of a, of a full time job and health benefits and and in uh, a four hundred one k. But that was you know kind of the person within you know the agency who's like they're going to push, they're going to go, they're given opportunities to go and, and try new things, but they, they had a bit of a safety net. For people outside of America, health benefits four hundred one k. Super important, okay, vital, vi vital things. They're scary when you don't have them or you don't, not sure how you're going to get them. So, so, I mean, you mentioned that a lot of the challenges that the agencies face are, are kind of similar in different parts of the world. Do you think they've been similar yeah. over the years? Are there any challenges that are, that are more specific to independent agencies right now than ever before? Yeah. Well, you know, let's look, if you look at the, the last few years, right, it's, if I read another article about the end of the creative and agency industry, I'm, 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 I mean, I'm just, it's like enough. It's this doom and gloom, right? What I mean, you, I think it all started. I, I, wanted, I wanted you to finish with like what you're actually going to do because then I'm just going to write an article and see if you follow through. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Me personally or? or <laughs> what you said, if I see another article that's like that, I'm going to. And then you didn't finish. And I was oh, like, oh, oh gosh. Oh, sorry. Cliffhanger. Yeah, 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 well, I, I, I was like, okay, I want to watch my language or, you know, anyway. Um, uh -huh. um, but there, there has been, right? There's been this, you know, the, the sky is falling. And that, hey, I mean, to some extent, it, there, there's some challenges out there. But, it, you know, it probably all really started 
um, or came to a, a from a media frenzy perspective um, when the um, uh, the ANA transparency report came out in 2016 about the concerns of you know rebates and incentive practices. Uh, uh, within the kind of the, the media buying process, you know, it, some at the, at the holding company level, and it created this high degree of, of mistrust um, with kind of the you know, with agencies overall. And you know, PNG and Unilever, they made you know significant news when they said, "Hey, we're we're consolidating all of our agency rosters by fifty percent, right?" And they're they're citing that there's inefficiencies <clears throat> within agencies, and you know, to some extent, some inefficiencies in, at the client level. But, you know, Mark Pritchard, CMO, global CMO of, of, of Procter & Gamble says, you know, agencies, you need to reinvent yourselves and, and make the, the process of working with you, you know, simpler, right? And, you know, we started seeing the significant margin erosion um, because clients are wanting more for less. You know, we used to be able to say, you know, good, fast, cheap, pick, pick two. And now clients say, no, I, I, I want three. And, you know, the agencies are sitting there, wow, how, how do I get this done? But I saw a really interesting comment um, on, a, on a LinkedIn post from a, a global CMO uh, for a major, major brand. And, he, and it was really nice. I don't know if it was nice. It was a, an, an illuminating um, client point of view on the subject of, you know, of, of managing cost. And, you know, he said, and I'll, I'll paraphrase that, you know, it's, it's really not just about advertising. It's about business and businesses needing to continuously adapt and, and, and streamlining because they have to manage their cost and their margin. And so, What's, what's everything to a creative director, to a chief creative officer, to an art director, to a planner? Uh, what's everything perhaps to a CMO, unfortunately, is just a line item on a P&L for the businesses. And so, you know, managing P&L means experimenting with ways to drive out costs. And so now you've seen this major shift over the last few years from, a, you know, what used to be AOR retainer models to significant you know, project work. And if you look at how agencies are responding, and again, I, I, I sound like I'm picking on the holding companies, but, you know, there, there are cracks in that foundation. You know, they, if they have to manage cost, what's their biggest cost? People, right? And so, um, and so they begin to cut costs and cut people. And many times it's senior level people because the senior level people, you know, cost more money than the junior people. And, uh, and then you have, you know, less experienced uh, people working on the business day to day. You've got fewer of them to get the work done. Agencies aren't happy. Clients aren't happy. And this, this cycle just, you know, uh, continues. Mm. So you, you're, you're seeing a shift in, in, in clients moving more work in-house. <clears throat> and that, that pendulum swings back and forth every decade. Um, but, you know, now it's about ownership of the data and, you know, giving them more visibility and more control so they can, you know, manage the entire customer journey. And, uh, but we're seeing it, you know, creative and housing is up. We're competing with our own clients uh, for business. And, um, you know, obviously the consultancies are getting in the game and they're acquiring agencies at a rapid pace. Um, they're leveraging that C-suite relationship that they've had for so many years where they've gone in and said, here's your marketing recommendation. And the clients say, who should we hire? And now they say, well, you should hire us because we own agencies who can do uh, all the activation. So, you know, I mean, all of this has created a high degree, I think, of negativity around the industry. But candidly, and, and, and this is what I feel from our agency leaders, is that they're optimistic and, and enthusiastic about, you know, what's ahead of them. I, 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 as, as cheesy as this may sound, I think this really is one of the most exciting times in the, in the, in the history of advertising, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got, you know, new tools and technologies and channels and 
you know, I mean, everybody's talking AI, right? And have plenty of articles on that, but it's, you know, it's redefining kind of the way we're, we, whether we identify our, our, our targets and how we message to them. Um, but I think what's even wonderful and, and for the creatives in the, uh, uh, who are listening is that you've got this, this renaissance of creativity and empathy and humanity that I think is coming back in, into the work. And that to me is ex- extremely, uh, extremely exciting. I do think it's interesting that when humans created the idea of a company and then gave them the legal status of humans, that they gave companies a lot of power and many companies have turned humans into line items. There's something sad about that. Uh, And then to your other comment about optimism and excitement, I I think a lot of the people that I talk to, they feel that and they know it and they can sense it and they know what they could do on a weekend if they wanted to write something or put a video on the internet and how many people it potentially could reach. And they have that idea. They love it. And at the same time, they go to an office where they are a line item and they're, treated as like some small cog in a large process that is huge and bureaucratic and very slow moving. And it's as if the extreme opportunity that they sense is met with an extreme stasis and reluctance to actually embrace it as they push themselves through this grinder of, of politics. And that's not everywhere, but I, I hear it a lot, especially in the big places. And then they have to either work out how to battle it, how to accept it, or how to get out of it and what to do with their lives. So it's, 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 a, weird, it's a weird time. I, I feel what you're talking about. I'm hopeful about the type of work that we can all do, more empathy within business. But at the same time, the opposite of that is also more extreme than ever with more power than ever. It's interesting. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. And, and, um, you know, and in, we, we've chosen the agency business and, and one of the downsides of it is that, you know, we're the ones making recommendations uh, to clients and we, we ultimately don't get to make the call. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and when, you know, if you look at the average tenure of a, a CMO, you know, I mean, depending on what you read, it's what, three years or so, right? They're already thinking about their next gig. It's rare that you're going to find, um, um, and I'm generalizing, but the CMO who, if, that, if that's kind of the time frame, what am I going to do in this three years um, that's going to ensure that I get you know, my next gig, uh, but also at least keep my three years, right? So it, 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 inevitably, there's some, some high degree of risk mitigation uh, that's put in there. Now, that's a broad generalization because I do see clients, and I think Fernando Mercado at Burger King is one of those who is taking risks, and you know, he's... he's but there's some realities there and it's just, yeah. it's, it is, it's, it's two polar, you know, conflicting high degree of tension dynamics that, uh, that are at play here. Yeah. And, and almost more nuclear than ever in, in their power at each other. Well, two, two quick anecdotes about years. I remember talking years ago to people who thought about moving to Singapore or who were living in Singapore. And I think this is more generally applicable than just to Singapore, but people would say it had they'd go for three years. The first year they'd try to settle in and work it all out. The second year they'd work hard and then they'd spend their time trying to work out how to get out. And that's not about Singapore being good or not good. That's just about the mentality of people who move around to do work. And also having worked a bit in the Midwest uh, at some massive, with some massive CPG companies, it was so off-putting when you're trying to do a workshop or strategy work and someone's talking about how they're only on the brand for 12 to 24 months. And in, in breaks, they're talking to colleagues about their next brand rotation. And you're like, oh gosh, mm-hmm. I, I thought we were here to do really good work. And they're just eyeing the brand rotation. Again, I don't mean to dismiss an entire group of people. It's just some of the things that I've come across that add to the yep. 
CMO tenure and the pressure on these things. Uh, what, okay, opportunities for independent agencies. You've mentioned some of the challenges around in-housing, consultants, shrinking margins, so on and so forth. Yeah. What are some of the opportunities for people well, running independent agencies? Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you a couple of things that I've seen on the on kind of new business model fronts, and I think this really applies um, to smaller agencies, especially agencies who are who are starting up, uh, who may be leaving a, a larger environment to do their own thing. You've got a bit of a consultant model, and and not in the vein of. Accenture, Deloitte, or, uh, but really more kind of brand consultancies, right? It's a, it's this core group of senior level strategists, uh, some with agency backgrounds, some with client backgrounds, who are coming to advise brand in, in the areas of you know innovation or brand reinvention, or there might even be campaign work. And you know, I think one of the best examples of this is uh, Jonathan Mildenhall, who was uh, the former CMO of Airbnb. Um, ex-Coke as well, um, has partnered with um, um, his former chief creative officer at uh, TWA to launch 21st Century Brands. And uh, they are really doing up high-end uh, brand strategy work. But, but the, the model is core senior team and, and bringing in the right execution resources uh, as needed. And I think in as, as similar fashion, you're seeing these creative collectives that are popping up, right? And it's, it's similar to the consultant model strong senior team bringing in the specialist to execute and um, Jason Peterson uh, is a former chief creative officer at Voss launched uh, recently the times and he's going to build it as a as an ad agency with the production company model and he's you know he's he's got 1.2 million followers I believe on Instagram so yeah for his photography and so he's mm-hmm. bringing together the the best of Instagram for um, uh, and the best of, of YouTube and so what the two have in common that uh, is you know senior level talent a lot of project work, higher project fees, uh, and then and keeping overhead low, uh, and then and then bringing in you know the experts, whether it's a planner who's very strong in CPG or if it's a digital media person very strong in in in, uh, in telco, um, and finding the right freelancers to bring in um, that allows them to you know maintain lower overheads. That model we're seeing scale even with you know the larger agencies. We have agencies that are range in size from 20 to, to 2,000. Uh, but even 150, 200 person agency, I think, are adopting um, kind of the freelance uh, and kind of gig economy and realizing there's great talent out there all over the world um, uh, that they can access. They don't have to be sitting, you know, in their office where they can they can watch them. And uh, I think the benefit for, for agencies is you can uh, expand and contract based on workload. Uh, you can find expertise when you need it. Um, and, you know, obviously the, the benefit for uh, the folks out there who are in the freelance world, uh, I think they hopefully are seeing more opportunities than, than ever before uh, on that front. Yeah, I, I think I think we're in such executional times and some countries and some cultures are, are more executional and transactional anyway. It makes complete sense to me in, in a way that I was probably trying not to agree with years ago to build a business, not necessarily around strategy, but around execution and production because people are buying clients are often buying the output and then to bring in the freelancers as you say and one of the main challenges i think agencies have who are in that headspace is they want to often want to own the freelancer or they want to own the person coming in to do the thinking as opposed to allowing it just to be a free-flowing collaboration where you know Mm -hmm. what you don't get to own that person and if you act like you own that person you remove their power and the positive stuff that they bring to you. So why do you keep trying to own them? I, I see that as a bit of a, uh, a mental block for agency owners that I know trying to, they're like, oh, what, we can't own the people anymore? And they don't talk like that. But I, I sense it within them because the, the company reflex is to gather the resources and to control them mm-hmm. and to feel that they own them. 
um, while right. also extracting as much value as they can out of them. But execution and production focus makes complete sense. For someone who's contemplating mm -hmm. whether to set up an agency now, mm -hmm. how would you help them navigate that decision? One is, was, is, is understanding your why. Right. I mean, is, is, you know, why are you wanting to do this? Is it frustration in your current environment? Is it, I need to keep the lights on? Is it, I have something special that I think people want? Uh, I think be really, really clear about why you're wanting to do it. Uh, understand that it's going to, to take some time. Um, you know, um, um, you know, Anselmo Ramos, again, you know, to use that example, um, you know, I, I spoke to him, you know, this right when he was leaving Ogilvy. And, um, you know, this was a guy who did Dove sketches, right? <laughs> and, 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 and did um, uh, the, the, the bird he work, has won several can lion. And he said to me is, I'm afraid. He's like, I, I, I don't know if people are going to hire me. I'm like, Anselmo, I mean, he, he, you're, you're going to be fine. But even somebody at that level was, I, I, don't, have, I don't have a safety net. Um, and, you know, I'm, 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 I'm taking some risks here. Um, but for him, he believed in doing great work and, um, um, and he understood his why very clearly. Uh, and so I think that would be one piece. I think that the, the, someone asked me the other day, if you were starting an agency today, what would you build? And I, this is a counsel that I'm, I would give anybody, whether you're starting an agency today or you already are an agency that's been in existence for 60 years. Pick a lane. Find an area of focus that you can own. And, and people are so afraid to do this. And, you know, it's, it's, it's FOMO, right? If I, if I find a lane and I try to specialize in, in something, then I'm limiting myself mm. to, to opportunity. And, and, and what I would tell them and what I have told them is that picking a lane actually opens, opens the road wide open for you because specialization, that's what people want. Yeah, yes, there's a need for full service models um, without question. The pendulum's actually swinging back that way, I believe. Um, but if specialization trumps geography, hmm. and, and what I mean by that is if, if you are the best if you're the best planner um, in, 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 in for, for beer or you're the best um, uh, creative director for, you know, I used the automotive category earlier, they'll find you. Yeah. And, and when you have, it, when you have a, a lane and you have a focus, and we tell our clients to focus all the time, here's your strategy and this should be the decision for everything you make. It's the same thing with, 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 with your lane. It, it tells you the types of clients that you need to go after. It mm -hmm. tells you the types of people that you need to hire. It tells you the type of resources you need to surround yourself with. And, and I would pick a lane, whether it is a capability, whether it is a, a service offering, whether it's a specialization with a specific target audience. Pick a lane. You know what? I especially understand that in the USA because it's number one in individualism, which means that as people grow up here, they have, they have to specialize who they are. And that probably comes out in behaviors such as applications to get into college. Why are you so special? How are you unique? And so it's part of the culture here. It also has a huge economy, which can sustain specialization. I've got, I've got friends here in lots of different kinds of industries. And they say that one of the things that keeps them here is that they can do more specialized kind of work, whether they're in law or medicine or whatever it is, uh, entertainment, you know, they can do a more specialized kind of work in America in the United States of America. Shout outs to all my friends in Latin America who correct me when I use America wrong, uh, wrongly the culture. And I think the economy can sustain that in smaller markets that I've been in or visited. I do think there's a huge reluctance to say to, to specialize because margin pressure, smaller scale. However, 
because of the internet and because of relative ease with which people can at this point travel between countries what you're saying definitely it, it rings true i also think there's something about some creative spirits they don't want to define themselves too much because they feel that they'd be denying themselves of their full creativity i think there's a little bit of that psychology going on mm-hmm. yeah here's what i'd say there, there's there's a difference in what type of business or work you go after and what type of business or work you may take in. If you may say, I'm going to focus, we, we work in travel and tourism, we work in insurance, and we work in, 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 in technology. We're going to spend the next six months and really focus on the travel and tourism sector. We're going to go after clients in that sector. We're going to create content around that sector. We're going to leverage our case studies around that sector. If by chance a phone comes in from a a technology company, yeah, we're going to take that. But Mm. especially if you're small and you don't have the resources to try to position yourself and be everything to everybody, there's a difference in what you, what you go after and what you take in. It it doesn't have to be limiting in that front. You can fulfill your need for variety. Sometimes you got to take on work just to keep the lights on, Mm. (laughs) you know? And so I, I, I realized that, but I think if you can find an area that you can focus on telling a story around externally, I think you might be surprised uh, of, of what that will do for the inbound. And if other inbound, op- we have an agency in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, who specializes in industrial equipment, B2B cranes, for example, right? Uh, and that's all they talk about. But if a beer company wants to hire them, I'm guessing their creatives might get a, some joy out of that. And they may say, hey, you might, you might take that hmm. um, because there's a, you know, uh, for some reason, there might be a connection of some sort. So it's just, it's a difference in what you go after and what you might take in. I've, I've never heard of that level of specialization within this, within marketing slash advertising. That's amazing. Well, it's, it, it's cranes, it's high-end industrial flooring, it's, you hmm. know, it's, it's big, Big, you know, but it is industrial B two B. You know, we have three agencies who specialize only in pharma. That's it. Mm. That's all they do. So that I can understand. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me and talking to me about the independent agency mindset and some of the the structures, the practices, the models that are happening out there. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, WorldwidePartners.com. Uh, best way to find me is John Harris on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. May you keep stoking the fires of the independent minds of the world. Uh, well, and, and, and you keep stoking the, the fires of the, of the minds all over the world as well. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. I'm definitely stoking something. Thank you. <laughs> all right, Mike. Cheers. Peace.